the Evolved Succeed podcast, where founders, entrepreneurs, business leaders, and experts are interviewed to explore the link between personal and business success. We will also investigate and establish the need for ongoing personal development, accountability, and support. The objective is to inspire you, the audience, to be better in life and in business. Welcome to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. This week's conversation is with Tom Mercer, who left his career as a management consultant aged 26 to start Mama Foods. He started selling his homemade oat smoothies to commuters at Waterloo Station in 2005 and has since grown Mama into a highly successful brand whose products include a very popular instant porridge, oat milk and the best-selling birch and muesli in the country. On this podcast, Tom reveals how he saved his fledgling business with a simple rugby tackle. I chased after this guy and um, admittedly he didn't see I was chasing him. I have to tell you that, to be honest. The, um, but then halfway down Deptford High Street, I managed to bear hug this guy. And he'd got my laptop under his coats with all my recipes on and all the business plan and everything. Emphasizes the importance of personal touch in getting retailers to believe in your brand. People buy into people and buy into their passion. And if you're pitching something to a supermarket buyer, they will buy into you a lot as well. Um, you know, they, they, they buy into the journey and the passion and the excitement behind the product. And Tom talks honestly about the personal challenges involved in starting a business. You know, I was working 16 hour days to start with. Um, I used to drive the van to the train stations and I had to put it in neutral and put the handbrake on when I got to traffic lights, otherwise I'd just nod off at the wheel. These were, you know, it was, it was, it was really tough and kind of, I used to work all the time, you know, I'd, I'd never go out in the week, uh, I'd be lucky if I went out at the weekend. And it just, I remember for seven years, my overriding memory just being knackered. Let's get on with the show. Welcome, Tom, to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. It's great to have you on this week's podcast. Well, thanks very much for having me, Warren. Uh, really appreciate it. It's nice to chat to you, albeit over over an online system. Yeah, we tried to do this face-to-face, but circumstances have, haven't presented. So, yeah, really keen to get you on the podcast. So I really appreciate you taking some time out uh, to spend with me today. We obviously met back in October last year, in the autumn last year, at the Evolve to Succeed uh, festival where you kindly uh, gave us a presentation on, on your story. So I'm really keen for our listeners to hear your story and, and the inspiration that's within it. So I thought I'd just start with a really open question around how and when did you start your entrepreneurial journey, Tom? Yeah, so um, so Mama is an oat-based business. So we do porridge, oat milk, birch muesli. And I started the journey Back in 2006, so a long time ago, I was a management consultant. I was working in London and it struck me that there was a gap in the market for a healthy filling on-the-go breakfast. Uh, so we launched with a stall, which was made from a f- converted filing cabinet in Waterloo Station, selling breakfast to commuters on their way to work in the morning. Um, so in a nutshell, that's kind of that's how we started. So do you think you're always destined to run your own business? Obviously, you say you're a management consultant, but was that a frustrating time for you? Were you always itching to go off and do your own thing? Were your parents business owners? You know, what what actually made you take that step outside of the management consulting role? 
Yeah, the management consulting was good uh, and I did enjoy it. Uh, but yeah, I was, I always thought I'd do my own business, uh, from a reasonably entrepreneurial family. So it's a farming family business, um, but kind of lots of different kind of offshoots and businesses and ventures within the farming structure. Um, so for me, it's something I always assumed I'd do and management consultancy was more kind of an introduction to the working world for me, really, uh, enabled me to get down to the big smoke, uh, to live in London for a little while. Uh, but always thought I'd do my own thing. So it kind of, it never seemed that big a step for me, really. People often say, oh, you're really brave doing your own thing. But I think that a lot of that depends on what your background is and your perspective on it. So my background was coming from quite an entrepreneurial family. So it it didn't seem a big deal at all, actually. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how it started. Yeah, always something that I thought I'd do. And having been a farmer's son, was that one of the things and why the food industry interested you or was there a variety of different ideas before you got into mama uh it was a little bit the food connection but not massively actually it was more the fact that um i was you know a management consultant really wanted to do my own things it was a case of me literally kind of walking down the streets, looking at different ideas that were out there, kind of daydreaming about things that I thought could happen, problems that were out there, and trying to come up with a, a good business. So it wasn't a eureka moment of being like, aha, there's a really gap in the market for this. It was it was a proactive decision to, I want to set up my own business. Let's think about where there's a gap in the marketplace. Yeah, and it struck me that there's a, there was a real gap on the market for a, a healthy on-the-go breakfast, which there really was particularly back then, so that was 2005 when I was really thinking about it. And there was, back then you could get uh, croissants and muffins from coffee shops, but there's no, not much other on-the-go stuff. And I used to walk over Waterloo Bridge to work in the morning with a an oat-based smoothie, which I'd made from blending oats and yogurts and apple juice and oranges and that sort of stuff. So that's kind of, uh, yeah, what made me kind of come up with the idea in the first place. So it was your own healthy living lifestyle, as it were, that made you realise that there, there was a demand and that others would would hopefully appreciate the same things that you would appreciate. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, no, it, it, def- it definitely struck me that there was a real opportunity here and it was you know, something that I could turn my hand to. And in terms of kind of going back to your previous question, in terms of, you know, did I have a, a connection with food, as I say, kind of a little bit, but it was more driven by here's here's a gap in the markets and also foods you know foods are very tangible thing and kind of setting up a consumer facing brand is quite a, a sexy tangible thing to do uh it's not that i wanted to be something it wasn't wanting to create a public facing brand as such but it's just a lot easier to connect to as opposed to doing something kind of behind closed doors that that nobody would ever see so um i think that's kind of what took me down the food route really yeah and what interested me as a, there's, there's loads of things that actually fascinated me when I heard you talk back in October. But one of the things that really did interest me is that you did apply quite a lot of research and science to this, didn't you? You know, you, you talk about that first stall at Waterloo, but you did a lot of footfall research around train stations, those kind of things. Can you just talk us through that part of your startup journey? Because I think it'd be really interesting for the listeners. Yeah, sure. I mean, some people would say I didn't do enough, but um, it depends on who you're I talking about. I'm not sure that any of us do enough. Yeah, really. the, um, so what I did was, uh, yeah, so the hypothesis was, okay, there's a gap on the market for a healthy, filling, on-the-go breakfast. And the idea was, you know, I'd sell 
food in places that are just busy at breakfast time. So the idea was stalls on people's routes to work. Um, so you have a lot of commuters first thing in the morning, but we wouldn't have to provide a lunchtime offering and that sort of stuff. So the research behind that, the steps I took were, first of all, a bit of desktop research, uh, kind of Mintel reports, that sort of thing, to look at the breakfast food market. And then I did a survey monkey just out to kind of probably 200 people asking them what their breakfast eating habits were, what qualities they liked in a, a breakfast, what types of breakfast they ate, did the same for lunch habits as well. Uh, and what came out from that was that uh, kind of tasty was number one, but then healthy, filling and fast or healthy, filling and convenient were the key things. And those kind of really underpin Mama still. And those are kind of long term trends, actually. And they have been for kind of the last years, particularly kind of health and health, um, healthiness um, and mm -hmm. convenience. Uh, and the fillingness aspect was something that really struck me back then that a lot of breakfast didn't deliver on. And that was what was a personal gripe with me, you know, having breakfast in the morning and then at 10 o'clock feeling hungry again. So I wanted to provide something that really was substantial and filled people up. The whole convenience trend is actually something that we may be seeing change now with uh, COVID-19, yeah. but I'm sure we'll come on to that a little bit later. The third bit of my research was like, so I'd done the, the, the online research, I'd done the survey out to friends, which confirmed that tasty, healthy, filling and fast were kind of the four things that people looked for was to actually do a, a trial down in Waterloo. So I, I went to Tesco, bought a load of water bottles, emptied them out, uh, print sticked new labels on that I printed out at Bain at my where I was working. They still let me use the desk there. Then I went down to New Covent Garden Market, bought a load of fruit, got some oats, some yogurts, uh, spent a couple of nights kind of blending up smoothies, oat-based smoothies in my living room in Waterloo. Um, in a home, on a home blender. On a home blender, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Every now and again, it'd be overheat a bit and you get this kind of smell of smoke coming up. Um, my poor flatmate didn't sleep much <laughs> for a couple of nights, but he was kind of encouraging the entrepreneurial spirit, so he didn't complain too much. Uh, then the next morning, I went out onto the street in Waterloo with my kind of 60 or so bottles of this oat smoothie that I'd made and gave them out to people on their way to work. Uh, and it was kind of on a thoroughfare route between Waterloo Station and uh, and Blackfriars Bridge, actually, kind of just outside my home. Gave people a bottle of this oat-based smoothie and took their business card and then went back to the office and emailed them a survey. Okay. I, was about, I was about halfway through giving out these bottles, though, to people, and uh, I'd run out of stock, and I had another half of my stock kind of back in my kitchen. So I walked back home. And I realized I'd locked myself out of the house. It was one of these doors that just shuts or like locks automatically behind you. And I could see through the kitchen window. Those were my like my oat based smoothies that I'd spent all this night. Is my blood, sweat and tears for two days, two I know, nights. I know, it's unbelievable. You know, one of those things where you literally not had a wink of sleep and up all night doing this. You're not thinking totally straight either. But there was a handy traffic cone on the pavement. So the traffic cone went through the window and I managed to break into my own house and rescue the smoothies and give them out to people on the street. Um, a couple of months later, my uh, my landlord did inquire as to uh, what the damage was on the window and very, very kindly put it down to um, to wear and tear, which, which was very nice of him. <laughs> Let's hope he's not listening to the podcast. <laughs> actually, funnily enough, I met... It was, the landlord was uh, was a bank actually, and I met the one of the one of the owners. Now it's a family business, and um, I told him the story, and he, he was quite. He, was, he likes to think it, they, they they played their own part in the Mama story, which was uh, <laughs> very kind of him. So it was uh, yeah, made a nice little little conversation when I met him. 
so that was kind of the, the, the research that went in. And as I say, I went back to the office, uh, emailed people a survey, got the responses back. There was a few funny responses. A couple of people said, thanks for the breakfast. I didn't actually have it because I didn't trust the dodgy bloke under the bridge in Waterloo. That was <laughs> giving out the smoothies. Another person said it was so filling it made them sick, uh, which was a backhanded compliment, actually, because the yeah. idea was to make it nice and filling. But anyway, I took from the survey, I was a little bit biased in terms of what I took from it, but that it was a really positive indication and that I could leave my job and set up this business. So that was kind of, so it was gone from this kind of uh, idea that I had while I still had my job open for me to go back to, to then yeah. getting to a point where I was like, went back into work and said, okay, I'm handing in my resignation. I'm going to go full time into looking at this venture. And I think we all have those moments there. I look back on my own story and there was a moment where, yeah, leaving a big kind of national corporate advisory firm and said, we you know, kind of whatever, you know, I, I love this place. It's been great. But whatever you say, whatever you do, I've got to go and do this. Yeah. And it sounds like you had that moment as well. Yeah, I think I think it comes to a, a without getting too kind of profound about it, but a deeper kind of calling about what you want to do and what's kind of kind of going to be fulfilling and make you happy in life. And obviously you need to balance that up with what's going to be to a certain degree logical and sensible and be able to deliver financially for you. But, you know, a lot of it needs to be kind of, you know, comes from who you think you are and kind of what your desire is to do it. Um, and, and that kind of bug gets a lot of people really. And for some people it pushes them over the edge to be like, actually, you know what, I'm going to do it. Yeah, definitely. And what was that? So what, what was good going to look like for you when you, you know, you left the management consultant world you sat up mama what was good for you at that point what was the ambition that you had for the business so I was 26 back then and the ambition was was quite lofty um and I certainly you know we're still chasing some of the ambition that was kind of back then kind of uh 14 15 years ago but yeah as a as a naive 26 year old you know I thought I'd do it for a few years make a few million and, and move on and you know we're still we're still here plugging away at it yes. haven't lost any of the passion loving what we're doing and we're in a really strong and exciting position as a business um but certainly I kind of I was certainly very naive, I think, going into it uh, in terms of, you know, I didn't, didn't have any experience on the on the food production side. There's lots of practical things about the product, but also just a lot of wishful thinking about how quickly we could do things. Um, so as I say, no, no regrets at all, but lots of learnings along the way and uh, certainly ambitions at the beginning that were pretty unrealistic, I'd say. Yeah. But do you think as a result, you've fallen in love with the business and the product? And oats in general more, you know, because it's well, become less about the money. That original ambition sounds like, to a certain degree, it was about opportunity and money. But clearly, yeah. you know, that, that, that still has to play a role now. But it, it sounds like it's something far more than that for you now. Yeah, at the beginning, I wouldn't say it was as much about money. It's about kind of wanting to do my own business and making a success of it and having that kind of entrepreneurial itch to do it. And, you know, I, was, I'm a, I think the passions, the passions, there really strongly now and it was there really strongly then and I suppose you know I've, I've I'd say it's the same actually to be honest Warren it's um, it's always been kind of a passion about kind of doing something making it succeed but also loving what I'm doing and I you know there's a lot of great business people out there that can make a real success of something that they have no personal interest in whatsoever mm -hmm. I think that's a lot harder to do though and you kind of I think it's a lot easier when you've got a genuine passion and interest in what you're doing, you know, and I, 
as cliche as it sounds, you know, a good breakfast is really important in the morning. And I really believe in our products. And it makes it, it makes a big difference to lots of people, you know, kind of get that quality breakfast in the morning, you know, it helps improve people's lives. And it's, uh, you know, and, and it's kind of fundamental, we're providing a service and a product that, that people value. Um, so yeah, that passion's passion's there now it was passion was there then as well uh it's just the journey in between has been uh it's, it's taken quite a long time yeah as it as it does time frames time scales do do seem to move and evolve but i think you're right i think you've got if you don't start that business with a real focus a passion and a belief and if you can't instill that focus passion and belief and keep that alight on your journey, however long or short that journey is, that's when you can run into some difficulties and moments of despair, isn't it? And it's great to hear that you've still, you still do have that passion now. But, you know, so how did you then go from, you know, making a smoothie in your flat, breaking a window to get the product, giving it away, taking a survey to being a real live business what were those early years like and were you still making it from home had you moved into some premises you know for our listeners how did you transcend to that next stage from idea to proper reality in a trading business sure so from the so from making that decision handing my notice in at work that there was quite a period of several months before we launched so it was spending a lot of time in the british library actually kind of working on the financial model of it and sitting down with a friend in Clerkenwell Green talking about the branding of it, uh, setting on a, a branding designer, a guy called Jocko, David Jenkins, uh, was freelancing for us and he kind of did the very first design, doing some focus groups on the product itself, um, trying to figure out where to put our first stalls. So that was a major mission, actually. So I spent months going around uh, tube stations on the streets uh, outside offices, uh, overground train stations, uh, finding a place where we could physically put a stall. Now, I thought we needed 10,000 people walking past in the morning to have a viable business. And I'd done that yeah. by standing outside fruit stalls and the like and counting the number of people walking by and the number of people that stopped to buy something. And I reckon you got about, on average, about a 2% capture rate. So if we had 10,000 people walking by and 2% bought, that's 200 people at £2 each would give you a £400 revenue in a day on a stall. So that was kind of the basic process behind that. So I spent, yeah, a couple of months kind of going around all sorts of different sites. Uh, and I'd stand there from kind of about six o'clock in the morning till half 10 in the morning with a little clicker, counting the number of people walking by. And then I would put a proposal into whoever owned that piece of land. So whether that was Transport for London or Network Rail or um, one of the smaller train companies that ran the station. Uh, so, for example, uh, Vauxhall Station would be run by Southwest Trains, for example, mm. and also put, pitching to councils and stuff as well. Uh, and it wasn't till December 2005 that we got permission for our first stall, and that was on, uh, it was on the bridge between Waterloo and Waterloo East train stations. So there's a lot of footfall there but sufficient space that i could physically sell the product and my pitch was look this is an incremental service for your customers it's incremental rent for you i don't require any water or electric i'm literally going to wheel this stall in place in the morning sell my breakfast and then wheel it out so we got the permission for the stall things then turned very operational so we had to find a premises and we took on a railway arch in deptford uh, and we're still on the same industrial estate in deptford yeah. 
So that was our very first site. We started hiring people. We finished off the branding. We did some focus groups to finalize the flavors. So that was in my, in my living room in Waterloo. Started finding suppliers of oats, yogurts, pots, a label machine to stick the labels on the pots, that sort of stuff. Then it was, uh, yeah, 24th of February, 2006 is when we launched. The day before we launched, actually, there was a funny story. Was uh, I was outside the railway arch underneath our van fixing a winch into the van and uh, somebody did did a runner out of our railway arch so somebody had been snooping around in our arch and then ran off and my business partner Amy uh, said to me oh Tom someone's just come out the railway arch so I I chased after this guy and Mm -hmm. um, admittedly he didn't see I was chasing him I have to tell you that to be honest the um, (laughs) then halfway down Deptford High Street I managed to bear hug this guy and he'd got my laptop under his coats with all my recipes on and all the business plan oh. and everything. So, uh, yeah, that was a, a rude introduction to Deptford, which is – Deptford's a great place, actually. It's changed loads over the years. Uh, it's a really kind of eclectic mix and um, a fantastic place to work. But that, that was a close shave on the first day. It was a moment of truth where the whole business was sat there on that laptop ready to disappear. Yeah, I know, I know. It would have been a shocker. So we ended. We then went back and it was another all-nighter uh, working on, on everything and um, putting labels on the pots making the product putting it into the stalls putting the stalls in the van driving it to the train station and then yeah 24th of february 2006 sold our first product i remember our first customer was a very nice lady bought a uh a hodgepodge i think from us which we don't do the hodgepodge anymore but it was a, a yogurt uh, fruit compote and granola yeah and then we, we ne- never looked back actually that was uh yeah kind of so 14 15 years ago um <clears throat> so that was kind of the launch of the business since then, a lot of stuff has changed, actually, uh, and we've made a couple of big pivots along the way. So we started from that one stall. We got up to nine stalls in London train stations. So this was in the days when pop-up stalls were, weren't were really around, actually. So, um, yeah, we wanted no, the first kind of pop-up. been more of a recent sort of last five, six years, haven't they? So, you know, they've become prominent, really. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, so that was, that was just quite, it was quite cool doing something really new and really entrepreneurial. And people do get behind you. You know, people love the fact they get to work and they could get this genuinely tasty product from this really new up and coming company and they would get served with a smile every day. Um, so yeah, we went from one to nine of those stalls. And then off the back of that, we started to sell into offices. So people would go into the office and say, look, I really love this product I've had uh, from this stall in London Bridge Station. Uh, and we got into so we got into offices, and then we started getting into Selfridges, and then we got into Waitrose, we got into Virgin Atlantic, and gradually, kind of the business shifted. So the emphasis being selling on the stalls to selling our products into kind of the travel sector and offices and grocery into supermarkets. So you made that sound, you know, so so easy that pivot and. And was it a natural pivot or was it a conscious decision? Because I think pivoting in those early years is one of those things that perhaps a lot of not enough people in business do. They set out with this principle and your principle as well, we're going to sell from the stalls and then the wholesale opportunity presents itself. And you clearly made a decision then to actually, that's the future direction of the business. That's where we need to pivot towards. So, so it was always the intention, actually. The idea was to kind of set the stalls, the business up on the stalls and to kind of launch the brand that way and then to start selling into supermarkets and so on. Okay. Um, it's just that first step took a lot longer than we wanted and kind of 
kind of in hindsight, it was very obvious, but kind of operationally, it was a real struggle. You know, we were we had a night shift and day shift in the kitchen. We were making stuff in Deptford. Then we started using a factory in Wales. And operationally, it was just hard work. And we weren't making enough money to make it to kind of to, be, to have the profit to be able to afford the overheads that we really needed to be able to run that business slickly. Um, so the, the, the launch phase of the business, which was these stalls, had kind of become this bit of a kind of a uncontrollable monster really um mm. and it was you know it was great but it was all consuming and it was really really hard work and it wasn't making any money and we had these nine stalls in train stations uh and it was you know and yet the kind of the wholesale side what i call the wholesale side to so selling our products to other people into offices or supermarkets was where i saw the long-term potential so i thought uh, fundamentally our product was better than our retail concept so getting our product into other retailers was always was going to have long more long-term potential than it was about the product yeah it was it all became about the product and it, i suppose that's where the business did start from wasn't it it was about creating this product so you would call yourself very much a product business and your your route to market is getting that product to as many people as possible isn't it yeah and i think to have a, a consumer facing retail business you know you've got to be all over all the detail all the time and like i say operationally our business was just a lot of stuff was done by the seat of the pants in the early days which is you know is inevitable to start with with a startup business but you know happened for way too long within the mama business and kind of that pivot to a more sustainable business model was a huge relief and it took us six six to seven years before we did that so it was a it was a a long time but um you know, is a is a massively positive change. Um, yeah, okay. going with that 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 first pivot, and and so that was sort of two thousand, sort of somewhere between two thousand eleven two thousand and thirteen. You really started to to move to that kind of wholesale market. And how did you know? For any food product business, it's it's always a challenge, isn't it? Is to how do you get into those big retailers? So. Have you got any tips and hints about how do you actually get that product out there? You know, as I say, you made it sound quite, when you, those names rolled off your tongue, it sounds, you know, quite an easy step and process, but we all know that that's a really difficult thing to do and achieve. So any hints and tips on how to get it, a product into yeah. the retailers? In terms of specific, as long, once you've already got the product, so I'd always say to people when they're trying to set up a business, a food business like this is to kind of, really make sure you've got the product sorted first. You know, it took us six, seven years before we kind of finalized our Birch Muesli really, kind of a lot of it working on shelf life and pasteurization and stuff, um, which was which was a real kind of, took a lot of focus over those first seven years. So I'd say get your product right first, which isn't always the approach in business now, particularly with tech. You lots of people doing an MVP, so minimal viable product, which is fine in the tech world. But I think it's tricky in kind of when you're producing a physical product on the marketplace and particularly when you then come to pitching to retailers. So I'd say get your product right first. But assuming you've got that product, how do you then take it into the retailers? Um, So for us, it was slightly different because we had these stalls. So we had a proven business model. So whether you've got stalls like us or you've got something else or you've been selling at a market or you've been selling online, something that shows those gives those retailers confidence that this is a quality product um from the sales data that you've got so they want to see see evidence that it's worked on the marketplace they obviously want to in case of food kind of taste the product uh and see what the kind of the look and feel of the product is like 
So those, those, I say, so that pitch is about showing them the evidence, showing them the product, showing them that the commercials stack up from their point of view. You know, getting into grocery in the UK is, it's a challenging sector, but a lot of people put it down and say, oh, it must be really hard dealing with the grocers. And it is hard, but I do think it's quite fair as well. If you've got a good product and people are going to buy it and you can make a good margin and the retailers can make sufficient margin, then you're going to get that product listed on the shelf. Um, so I do think it's, it's, it's quite a good system in the UK. You know, there's relatively few retailers. If you get in with them, you can have distribution across the country fairly quickly. Um, so those are kind of the practical elements of getting into a supermarket. Um, I would also say that, you know, the personal touch makes a massive difference. You know, people buy into people and buy into their passion. And if you're pitching something to a supermarket buyer, they will buy into you a lot as well. Um, you know, yeah. they, they, they buy into the journey and the passion and the excitement behind the product. And it is infectious. And we all, we all see this in kind of all walks of life. So yeah, there's those, those intangible softer things are really, really important as well. And that comes back to building your personal story, but the brand and the brand story as well becoming vitally important, which is so key in any sort of entrepreneurial owner managed business, isn't it? It's the one thing I think that some individuals and owner managers don't leverage enough. And it's the one thing that sets us apart from corporates. Corporates have got a lot of advantages, but in my view, one of the big advantages that we have as entrepreneurial and owner-managed businesses is that passion, but is that story? And um, we need to leverage that more, don't we, Tom? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it makes a big difference. Um, you know, people buy into the story, people get inspired by a story, people want to support small businesses. Um, but it's not just about the fact that they want to support the underdog or they want to support the small guy. You know, that passion and that kind of that story that's got the person to where they've got to, I think says a lot about where that product or that service is going to get to in the future and why that okay. company might want to back it because they're like, okay, if this person's done this and they've got it to this point, then, you know, this is horse I want to back, so to speak. So, um, you know, it's not just about the feel good factor of supporting a young entrepreneurial independent business. It's about, you know, this, this thing could really have legs. It could really kind of go distance. And therefore that's where, I want to support this as opposed to supporting kind of a more established, bigger um, corporate company out there. Yeah. And then from there, obviously, you, you make that sort of pivot, that switch consciously into wholesale. But you've then launched a whole new kind of product range off the back of that, haven't you? And do you, can you just explain that journey to our listeners? Yeah, look, we've, do, we've done actually a couple. So, um, and, you know, we've done stuff that we've tried that hasn't worked as well. Um, so, you know, Birch and Muesli was our big thing. Uh, we were and still are the number one Birch and Muesli on the marketplace. But it's it's a challenging sector, actually. It's mainly an out-of-home product. And a lot of the, as in, it's best eaten out of the home. Mm. Um, but a lot of cafes and so on have done their own version of a Birch and Muesli. So it just cuts down the size of the market for us selling in supermarkets. We kind of the first big pivot kind of came, uh, you know, we moved away from the stalls to wholesale in kind of 2012, which was a gradual change over the previous few years. Uh, then in 2014, we switched mainly to porridge, so to an ambient porridge. So porridge in pots and sachets where you just add hot water. So that was a, a, was a major change for us, actually. Um, fundamentally, from a business, objectively, the porridge just stacks up better than the birch muesli. Um, you get a consistently 
high quality products from a consumer point of view. The consumer price point is lower, so it's more compelling. Uh, and the margin is is slightly more easily obtainable from our point of view as well. So it's kind of a win on all points, you know, more consistent product and better pricing all round for everybody. Um, so, yeah, we've really been pushing porridge hard for, I'd say, five years now. And it tastes wonderful, I have to say. For anybody that hasn't tried it that's listening, go and grab a pot from the shelves. It is amazing. Oh, very kind of you, very kind of you. And then, yeah, then this year we launched oat milk. So that's kind of looking at, you know, long-term trends in the marketplace. And I think kind of the move towards plant-based eating is going to be kind of a 30-year trend. And so I was looking at this and meat alternatives and dairy alternatives and oats fits really well as a dairy alternative option. And we all know kind of how much the oat market is really rocketing. So spent a lot of time looking at that and trying to find the right recipe, the right people to work with. And I think we've got a really quality product. It's a really competitive marketplace. Um, we've got some real interesting ideas um, that we're working on and everything. But um, yeah, that's another string to our bow and hopefully quite a significant string to our bow. So you've kind of got the porridge, kind of the core of the business, uh, the oat milk, kind of a really emerging side of the business and then our birch and muesli which is kind of what what the core of the business was kind of 10 years ago but is now kind of a, a, a more niche line for us okay and can you do you mind touching on some of the things that haven't worked and and how that decision making process went from you know we all get sometimes passionate and uh, really infused by a new idea new service new products and we perhaps you know it doesn't go quite to plan and we linger with it a bit too long um do you want to? Do you mind you just reflecting on some of that within your no, story and, and how you made those decisions to perhaps stop a product? Yes, there's two main product lines that we launched and then we pulled uh, off the market. So the one of them was our it's our breakfast smoothie, which was it's based around a drinkable breakfast, of which there's quite a lot on the marketplace now, um, but they've all struggled, I think, actually. Um, so and it kind of goes back so. I know. So about five years ago, there was a big surge in interest from supermarkets and there was a lot of innovation around drinkable breakfasts. So you kind of got the Weetabix breakfast drink, uh, up and go breakfast drink, and lots of people doing kind of protein shakes and that sort of stuff. And I wasn't that confident on it, actually, because I just think it's really hard to drink something that genuinely fills you up. So we didn't do it to start with. But then it kind of fast forward a year and I thought, look, we should really be part of this market. And this kind of harks back right at the beginning of the business. We remember we were doing these oat based smoothies, which we called oatmeal back at the beginning. So so, you know, we'd really got the heritage behind it. But that was a a smoothie with 13 percent oats in. So it was really, really thick. And um, it's fine to do that as a fresh product, but it's really hard to do it as a long life product. So. But anyway, we decided we would give it a go. We went into it. We launched a product. Um, we didn't really put the marketing spend behind it that we needed. Um, and the product just didn't have the sales. It got delisted from the supermarkets. And look, I'm really glad we didn't put the marketing spend behind it either. I never had the, the confidence in the product, but I thought we should give it a go. And as it happens, the product didn't work. And I'm pleased we didn't kind of waste a hundred grand behind kind of marketing and stuff as well. So. So breakfast smoothies was something that, you know, unless it really fills you up, I personally just think is a is a really tough sell. So that's something we came out of. And then the other one was we called it our oat minis, which was kind of 
a healthy vegan gluten-free uh lot lower sugar kind of oat-based snack it's kind of little cluster balls of oats um uh which was a really great product actually um and uh the reason we stopped that it was that was more of a practical reason actually so we were the market's very competitive for healthy snacking again this has been a phenomenon over the last kind of i don't know five to ten years really where kind of you know we've seen this surge particularly in brands like uh graze and urban fruit and bear that sort of stuff um so we thought actually you know this is an obvious extension you know within the oats umbrella it's an obvious thing for us to look at um we launched the product it was really good uh, we were getting some listings but not that many but then basically our manufacturer pulled out so we found a manufacturer they were the only people in the uk with this specific machine because it was quite a bespoke piece of kit and it, they decided it just wasn't working for them. The machine was a really practical thing. The machine was taking too long to make the products. It was needing lots of spare parts. They couldn't continue to charge us as they were charging us. They needed to put the price up if they were to continue. We were already making a reasonably low margin on it. And we could have battled on with it. And there are now other manufacturers in the UK. But at the time, we thought, you know what? We've got enough on our plate. We've not got a massive listing on this anyway. Let's just... Let's just pull this one and, uh, you know, cut our ties with it and rather than plowing more money into this, uh, which is what we did. And we may go back to it at some point in the future, but particularly yeah. with kind of the oat milk on board now, I think it was just <clears throat> we were we were getting pulled in too many different directions and launching a new product just takes up a ton of time from your development team, uh, the people in marketing working on the design of it, and particularly on the sales team, kind of pitching new products into people on the operations team because they're dealing with another manufacturer um so yeah those are two products that we tried okay. they didn't launch and we stopped them and a great example of something the one what there was a few things clearly that did resonate with me when when i heard you speak but one of the things that still you know lives with me to this day is is you talk about passion and objectivity and getting that right balance and that's a great example isn't it you can be passionate about something but you've got to be objective at at the same time haven't you and and i think they're two good examples of where you've reflected that kind of personal belief yourself haven't you yeah look at that that's kind of my one biggest kind of insight that i get over my kind of 15 year journey is getting that balance between passion and objectivity i think kind of passion and doggedness and resilience and stubbornness are kind of essential qualities almost for an entrepreneur um, particularly in those early days but you've got to have that objectivity to say, you know what, this isn't working. And that's a real conflict within the mindset of an entrepreneur. And it's, it took me way too long to kind of understand that actually um, and realize that, yes, there's always stuff you can do better. But sometimes an idea just isn't working and, you know, you're better to change and move on to something else that is. And getting that balance is is, is is really tricky but that would be my single kind of biggest learning over the last 15 years getting that balance between passion and a rational objective viewpoint on whether something's working yeah it's a challenging mindset to have but it's, it's such i can see the benefit and it's an, an incredible one if you can get there and, and and i suppose it's a route to success for those that are in business isn't it and uh, so many of us as you say are passionate about what we do and, and are too dogged to, to be objective. So yeah, one one thing that yeah, I still I, I've got it on a post-it note. I wrote on a post-it note the day after your presentation, and it still sits on my desk to this day because it really did resonate uh, with me. I, I think 
clearly you've you know it's been a really successful journey you've had you've had some challenges along the way tom how's that how's the journey affected you personally and affected your personal life if you don't mind me asking because to to succeed can take a lot out of you and it can take a lot of single-mindedness to to the sacrifice for some people in in terms of their own personal life so how's it affected you yeah so i was i was really lucky that i kind of i always think it's just kind of as an aside i think there's this funny thing with setting up a business you know kind of the younger you are the easier it is because you've got less commitments you probably not married you don't have a mortgage all that sort of stuff so the less opportunity cost there is and the less risk there is of doing something but Whereas on the other hand, the, the older you are, and the more experience you've got, probably the more chance you've got of making it work. Um, so I think there's a slight conflict there. But related to that, you know, I, so I, I was very young when I set my business up, kind of 26, 27. So I you know, didn't have any of those constraints and that sort of stuff. So um, had I been married with children when I set the business up, I think it would I think it would have been extremely hard. Um, you know, my business. I wouldn't advocate it at all, but, you know, I just threw a lot of time into it. You know, I was working 16 hour days to start with. I used to drive the van to the train stations and I had to put it in neutral and put the handbrake on when I got to traffic lights. Otherwise I just nod off at the wheel. These were, you know, it was, it was, it was really tough and kind of, I used to work all the time. You know, I'd I'd never go out in the week. Uh, I would be lucky if I went out at the weekend and it just, I remember for seven years, my overriding memory just being knackered um and you know really rewarding but just just really hard work and that you know had I been married with kids I'm sure uh my wife would have said actually you know what (laughs) enough's enough uh you know quite rightly but as it was for me it worked and it was fine um but it you know that consumes my late 20s and early 30s it changed mama changed a lot kind of with that first pivot of moving away from the stalls we also changed our so we were manufacturing our birch muesli in-house for the first year, then found a manufacturer in Wales, which was quite hands-on for us. And then we moved to another manufacturer, to, to Yo Valley, actually. So they make our birch muesli, and they're a shareholder in the business. Um, and it was that change in 2012, so moving manufacturer and stopping the stalls, which all of a sudden the business became more manageable. We were also getting to a size where I could start to uh, employ some good people on board in a business. So kind of a good head of sales, uh, you know, and those people have now developed and, and, you know, I'm now kind of chairman in the business and we've got a managing director. So the business now is a lot more manageable. Um, it doesn't mean things are straightforward by any means. Um, and we've got a ton of challenges still ahead of us. But from a personal point of view, it's a lot more manageable than it was. Um, and I'm able to make sure my time goes on stuff that's important uh you know I, I monitor my time actually every half hour I kind of monitor what I'm doing so I can retrospectively look back and say you know what time is going on valuable areas what time I want to cut back um so yeah a lot more manageable now I do think it's hard for people in the early days though of setting up a business um people always say you know you need to work smarter not harder and you need to look at the big picture that's quite hard when you're really in the thick of it you're not big enough to be able to employ those people so yeah okay uh, what just something to pick up on there or two things one is how do you actually monitor your time because i think that's got an interesting tip for people to you know are they they do are they doing the right things in their business is that just a piece of paper by your desk that you just write down during the day what you've been doing or is it more methodical than that yeah i'm a bit, of an, <laughs> I'm a bit of an excel geek it's kind of a part of a hangover from my 
Bain Management Consultancy days. So, you know, I have a spreadsheet and I um, just every day kind of, uh, it's got a column for each day of the week and a row for every half hour. And I just record, you know, if I'm working on strategy, which has a different code and sales or operations or marketing or something like that. And then it's just a some formula at the bottom. So at the end of the week, I can see uh, what I've been working on and it'll add up over the course of the year. So I can tell over the course of this year, I've spent 25% of my time on strategy stuff and a sometime doing admin or whatever and it just enables me to kind of critically evaluate if I'm spending too much time in some areas and how that can be adjusted to basically it's all about trying to make my time more productive and more efficient brilliant it is quite a geeky way of doing it but I can see it's a great way of doing it and a, and a great tip and, and one I'm sure our listeners will will take away and the other thing is um and we had uh, a few weeks ago, Rick Exley, who's become the managing director of Jimmy's Ice Coffee, obviously a brand that you'll be aware of, Tom. Mm-hmm. And Jim and Susie, obviously the founders have put him in as an MD. And I'm always interested, and, and it's interesting to hear you say that you've done that as well, is is when you are the founder of the business and and that transition from letting go of some of the day-to-day and, and you know taking the kind of founder, chairman, uh, exec chairman type role and putting in an MD how did you find that process and any tips for the listeners on installing an MD in an owner-managed business? Uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't find it too bad. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of a very gradual transition at uh, uh, in within MoMA. Um, I'd say Pete's a lot better at a lot of that stuff um, than me. He's kind of more in tune with some of the stuff that's on the market. He's We've both got different strengths that we bring to the business. Um, but I think generally a founder will have uh, a lot of energy and drive and uh, 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 that entrepreneurial and uh, innovative mindset, which is still good, but isn't always essential in terms of kind of management, like day-to-day management and good processes within a business. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of some of the slightly, some of the skills that are definitely needed by a founder aren't always needed by somebody kind of actually running the business. So, um, yeah, I found the transition fine, actually. Um Right. So, I suppose from my side, the good things that I did, you know, it was a gradual transition. Um, I very much appreciated kind of the value that Pete brings and kind of what he can do that I can't do, um, which is many, many and varied things. And uh, yeah, so so I thought I, for me, it's it was been a fine transition, letting go of certain things. And I've hung on to the things that I think I can really add value and the things that I really enjoy. Um, but it's about kind of em- empowering other people for the business to be able to grow ultimately fantastic thank you tom um before i round up with a couple of final questions it would be wrong not at this time to talk about coronavirus and 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 how that's affecting you and affecting the business and maybe affecting your long-term strategy so how have the events of recent weeks affected the business at the moment yeah i um yeah, it's affected of massively actually short term. I mean, not we're very lucky, you know, we're not, not as much as kind of people in entertainment or travel or pure food service businesses. So we're very lucky from that point of view. And we've come into this year with a with a strong balance sheet uh, and kind of, you know, we were forecasting to make a respectable profit this year. So I'm hoping we'll scrape the year at break even. But yeah, our a third of our sales are in the food service sector. So selling into offices and the travel sector. Uh, and into into pubs like Weatherspoon, and that's pretty much zero at the moment. All of that stuff. Um, so yeah, we're forecasting twenty percent down overall this year. So we t- we t- will turn over kind of r- 
we're roughly a, a five million ish business and you know so we're kind of losing a million pound of turnover so that's affecting us well obviously very significantly we've cut a lot of costs along with that um but uh but yeah we're, we're staying pretty positive i think we're kind of on top of the situation for us it's about forecasting reforecasting keeping on top of the numbers um we've gone past that first month basically april of uh you know, stuff going crazy operationally and just trying to madly chase our tails. And I think we're kind of on top of stuff now. Um, we've got it a couple seems of... to have settled into a new norm, would, would you say? Is that kind of a good way of putting it? Yeah, a couple of people um, are furloughed uh, and hopefully we'll kind of be able to get those back as soon as possible. It's working pretty well, people working remotely. We're very lucky that our business doesn't require people to physically be there. So there's no real operational impact of that. Um so yeah, in the short term, I think we've got on top of it as quick as we can, um, and reasonably pleased with with how it's working. Um, long term, my concerns are just the changes in the dynamic of the market. So, an opportunity is the increase in online sales. I mean, that'll be the same for everybody, but I think it's definitely interesting, and it creates a slightly more level playing field than what you would get in supermarkets. Um, and yeah, my other concern is that. Our core products, our porridge, um, you know, is it basically a premium convenience porridge? Um, you know, we, th- we think we've got a, an excellent porridge and we've got a great loyal fan base. But if uh, working habits change and people travel less, if people work at home more, um, then the market for convenient products will reduce. And if people have got less money, then the market for premium products will reduce. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to be a tough period, actually. Um, but we've got to make sure that uh, we're one of the brands that comes comes out winning from this in kind of a year, two years time um, when kind of I think it might take a long time before things settle down and it may require kind of a bit of consolidation in the marketplace. I think it certainly is, isn't it? It's not going to be an instant life returns to normal, business returns to normal. And uh, I think it's also that and, and I think that reflects in what you're saying is you've got to understand where you sit yourselves in the market and how it affects you, but also possibly that opportunity in time to just reflect, reset, and maybe, you know, some slight pivots along the way will emerge as, you know, as things would turn to whatever the new norm is, um, be open to ideas and opportunities. Uh, it's going to be the critical, critical way of looking at things, I think. So thank you, Tom. Thank you for that honest kind of response and answer on where you are now. Just to wrap up um, the kind of discussion, I'd just like to ask you, what hard thing are you not doing enough of right now? What hard thing am I not doing enough of? Um, within the business specifically? Well, business or personal, because I think, you know, it's important that we probably reflect that without that balance between a a healthy personal and business life. So what's the thing that, you know, that you're that you pushing off? What's the thing that you think I know I should be doing more of? Or... The thing that's been on my plate for a while is just just more kind of uh, outside of work, um, learning, reading, uh, all of that. You know, mom has, mom has consumed, my, consumed my life for a long, long time and I love it. Um, but I, I'm one of these people that I can always, uh, are quite bad at... Um, I suppose prioritizing stuff and will always kind of throw myself into the work when it's there to be done. Uh, and it would be nice to kind of just uh, have a bit more time kind of broadening horizons and learning more stuff um, outside of oats. Not that oats aren't the most important thing in the world, yeah. but kind of learn, learning a few of the other important things as well. 
Perfect. And then finally, and I think you we touched on this earlier on in the in the podcast, but how do you, you know, with all the, the years behind you now and to be where you are, how do you define success? Mm, I think, okay, so so I think there's a few different versions in terms of kind of, for, for, for me personally, success is having kind of, is being fulfilled from a career point of view, uh, which is about, uh, the combination of doing kind of an exciting career, something that feels important, something that can kind of uh, is sufficiently financially rewarding that enables me and my family to have the opportunities we want in life. So it's about having a fulfilling career, but also having kind of a loving, caring, fulfilling family life as well. So it's for success for me in life is about the combination of the two. Um, and I think those lead to overall being fulfilled. Uh, in terms of business itself, success you know, it's about having something that, you know, it's not just about the financial um, and financial is important just because, you know, it is a measure of how sustainable uh, a business is being to a large degree. Um, but it's about having something that I'm really proud of uh, and also a team that I'm really proud of. And it's about, you know, if you if we can have something we just look at on the shelf and we're really proud and it's doing a great job and we get some great, we can get some great emails from people writing in saying how it's changed their life. And, you know, they've, you know, and we do get those emails. It's incredible kind of people that kind of really buy into something that really makes a difference to their life. Um, and also if we can empower and grow and develop our team as well, you know, there's been lots of people that have been with us for quite a long time. And um, a lot of people would say this, but it's, you know, it's, it becomes a bit like a family and you've kind of got, you know, you've got responsibilities to those people and, um, you know, in return, people, uh, people are loyal to you. And if you can have something you're proud of and you can develop a great team of people, I think those are real pillars of success alongside the financial element as well. Brilliant. Thank you. A great balanced perspective there, Tom. And thank you uh, for not only making oats more awesome, but uh, for being a great human being and sharing your, your thoughts with us today tom it's been great to have you on the podcast if people want to hear more about you know more about you and the mama story and get their hands on some uh, product uh, where can they find out more tom uh it's all on our website uh, mamafoods.co.uk there's a shop on there if you'd like some uh then we're at mama foods on instagram at mama on twitter uh mama foods on facebook um so yeah all the all the normal sources um but yeah thanks very much for having me on warren it's been a real pleasure chatting to you it's been great to have you as a guest. Thank you. I'm sure you, like I, was impressed by Tom's tenacity and single-mindedness to get the business off the ground. And there are certainly lessons and inspirations there for us all. What, for me, really came out of that discussion was the importance of learning to look beyond the money and focusing your passion on the product and service you're selling while believing in your story and developing your brand. I really think this is a key cornerstone to succeeding as an entrepreneur and business owner. If you haven't yet done so, then please do go to evolvemembers.com and sign up for free to be part of a community of like-minded individuals. Your free membership gives you access to great content, events, and the opportunity to be part of one of our peer groups. I'd also like to remind you that on the Evolve Members website, there is our COVID Resources Centre which has been set up for all 
to help inform, support and inspire you during the current crisis. Please do go take a look and sign up for one of our weekly Zoom peer groups. The sharing and support of these groups really is making a big difference to a lot of business owners at this present moment in time. I also remind you to go to inspireaccountants.co.uk, which is business and tax advisors, also has a resource centre carrying everything you need to know about the financial issues and government support and funding during the current crisis. As ever, both Evolve and Inspire is here to support you and make sure you come out of this current situation stronger, wiser and more inspired, both in your personal and professional life. We've also got some great Evolve webinars coming soon, so please do keep an eye on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram for future announcements. Thanks again for listening and until next time from all of the Evolve team, please stay safe.